Welcome back to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. This is the second podcast on accountants and the world of audit. My name is Richard Hiley, partner at DACB, and I specialize in accountants liability. I am delighted to be joined by Ben Hubble, KC of Four New Squared Chambers, uh, who truly is an expert on this subject. And Ben will be sharing some recent insights on the influence of recent case law on audit negligence claims, in particular, dealing with a new breed of claims for trading losses. Morning, Ben. Uh, You've come uh, to talk with us today uh, about case law and also tactics. Uh, Can we start, please, with case law? Richard, of course, with with pleasure. Um, Really, in the context of trading losses, the position begins and ends with Manchester Building Society and Grant Thornton at the moment. Now, in MBS and GT, uh, as listeners to this podcast will know, the six stages were laid down in relation to identifying whether there's a recoverable loss. Uh, And I won't go through all of those, but I'll remind the listeners that, that the second stage, scope of duty, involves identifying the purpose of the duty to which the defendant is subject, and that the court should judge this on an objective basis by reference to the reason why the advice is being given. And then the most crucial stage is stage five, duty nexus, which is where the court asks itself whether there is a sufficient nexus between the particular loss for which the claimant seeks damages and the defendant's duty of care. Now, how do those two points, scope of the duty and duty nexus, translate through into a trading loss claim? Well, there's no majority in Manchester Building Society that gives us the answer to that. But attention tends to fall on the speech of Lord Leggett, um, in which he at least considered the requirements for duty nexus in respect of trading loss claims, following on from his consideration of the Court of Appeal judgments in Asset Co. And I'm just going to read you two sentences, if I may, which which are really the crux of this. At, At paragraph 122, Lord Leggett says as follows, To conclude that the losses were within the scope of the auditor's duty, it was necessary to go further and find that the losses arose from a matter which made the accounts and auditor's opinion on the accounts incorrect. And then at 123, he has the following sentence. Where an auditor negligently fails to detect and report a cause or potential cause of loss to the audited entity, with the result that losses from that cause occur or continue to occur, there is ex hypothesi a causal link between the subject matter of the auditor's negligence and those losses. So you need more than but-for causation. You need more than the company would have gone into some form of insolvency and ceased trading 
therefore trading losses were incurred. That doesn't make those trading losses recoverable. What makes those trading losses potentially recoverable is if they arise from a matter which made the accounts and auditors' opinion on the accounts incorrect. And that's the the test with which the parties are grappling at the moment. Why is it that these recent decisions uh, have produced different arguments that we're seeing? And I know you're going to come on to talk about those different arguments. I think you need to take a, a step back to, to answer that. And you need, in a way, to take a step back, right back to Caparo and Dickman. And the issues and the defences which auditors have usually been able to deploy in relation to duty, reliance and factual causation. And the central point there, as you'll know, is that the auditor only owes duties to the company and its members acting as such. So in a trading loss claim, there are often powerful lines of defence for an auditor that For instance, a claim is in truth an investor claim dressed up as an audit negligence claim. Or perhaps that the company did not rely on the audit's opinion because the company already knew what was going on. Or relatedly, that some further step from the auditor wouldn't have made any difference because the company knew what was going on. So the claimant is looking for ways to try and get around those lines of defences and for ways to establish factual causation and then try to elevate factual causation as if it were the duty nexus. Now, two interesting areas that that I've seen in in a number of recent cases where claimants are, are trying to get around these restrictions is first when one's looking at reliance and factual causation, the contention that the auditor is obliged to report the accounting issues or the financial irregularities to those charged with governance, or as it's quite often referred to, TCWG, and that those charged with governance extend beyond the directors of the audit company itself. Now, per ISA 260, those charged with governance means the persons with responsibility for overseeing the strategic direction of the entity and the obligations related to the accountability of the entity. Uh, And that would include overseeing the financial reporting and disclosure process. So in a group context in particular, the audit client, who will be the claimant, may have a supervisory body or that included not just de jure directors of the audit client, but also directors from other companies within the group, particularly those higher up the ownership ladder. All, all those, if they were on a supervisory board, including non-directors of the audit client, could potentially be those charged with governance under ISA 260. Similarly, if there are parent companies that oversee the strategic direction of the entity, and the obligations relating to the accountability of that entity, then those parent companies could potentially be those charged with governance. Particularly if what it is said that the auditor should have spotted relates to, say, financial irregularities 
or non-disclosures on the part of the executive management of the audit entity. So what we're seeing is an argument that actually the relevant decision makers were not the directors, the then directors of the claim and audit entity. The relevant decision makers were those on a supervisory board or those higher up the chain parent companies. You can probably see how that could potentially at least cut through some of the traditional arguments of duty reliance and factual causation defences. Um, I think that means it's particularly important for audit firms to be very clear in their records in relation to their audits of who are those charged with governance in relation to any given audit and to ensure that their uh, records are in good order in relation to that. Second, in relation to um, factual causation in particular, but, but it starts to bleed out into other areas, we're seeing claimants be imaginative in relation to why it is that if the auditor had complied with their obligations, a company would have ceased the trading losses or perhaps gone into some form of insolvency earlier. For instance, um, one sees counterfactual arguments now being advanced to the effect that if the auditors had done their job properly and if they had discovered X, Y, and Z at the audit client, then the auditor would have been obliged either to resign or potentially to uh, give an adverse or qualified opinion. Now, under the Companies Act, if an auditor has to resign, the auditor has to send a statement to the company, including details of the relevant matters that cause them to resign. The company in law under the Companies Act is bound to send that statement to all those entitled to receive a copy of its audited accounts including every member of the company and significantly any holder of a debenture or charge. And on that basis, you can see claimants pushing the boundaries to try and argue for what, in effect, comes very close to the idea that a duty is owed to take account of the interests of creditors, and secondly, as a matter of reliance and factual causation, that in a resignation scenario, it's the creditors who would have come to know the material facts and they would have dictated what would then have happened. So the management would have been replaced, the company would have been placed into administration at an earlier stage, the trading losses would have ceased. What we're seeing is claimants, and particular legal teams for claimants, who are well-versed in the arguments that have been rehearsed in ASICO and in MBS and GT, trying to be imaginative about how to push the boundaries in relation to these areas. So what I um, fixed on from that, that was... Uh, a great analysis, if I may say so, Ben, of um, what, what has changed as a result of these cases. Uh, but you mentioned something very important, which is the importance of being absolutely clear during an audit to whom you're reporting. Uh, very difficult, perhaps, to guard against some of the other creative pleaded arguments, but that one in particular, you can take steps to protect yourself against. Can we come on, please, Ben, to um, hear some thoughts from you on strategy, how to deal with these cases, uh, what, what we're seeing 
um, recently, which should change our thinking about how we approach the defence of these cases, assuming that we're acting for the audit firm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think there's a very, very interesting dynamic going on at the moment in trading loss claims and an element of um, ships in the night between the cases that are being presented by claimants and the cases that are being presented by defendants. Um, the first point I wanted to, to address in that context is the crucial role which the underlying accounting data of the claimant, i.e. the former audit client, plays in, in relation to actually the strategy of these cases and how they play out. Now, there are, there are always problems, starting from the disclosure process right through into expert reports, joint meetings, joint reports, in respect of the underlying accounting data of the claimant. Uh, and in short, the defendant is always pressing for the underlying accounting data of the claimant in order to reconstitute the accounts and so investigate the true cause of any trading losses that might allegedly have been suffered, or perhaps whether there are any benefits for which credit should be given by the claimant. Conversely, the claimant is always resisting disclosure at such a granular level on these bases, typically saying first that such data is no longer accessible and or second that requests for that level of granularity are disproportionate and or made too late. Uh, and for reasons I'm going to come on to, that it becomes a real bugbear later on in the expert evidence process. Uh, the answer for a defendant firm is to press for that data early on and to ensure that the claimant is preserving it. Um, now, why does that underlying accounting data become such a problem and so important? The answer really is a byproduct of the second and third issues I want to discuss, which both relate to the question of sequential exchange of expert reports and what I'm seeing in relation to that at the moment. Now, so far as the as liability expert reports are concerned, Typically, one has sequential exchange, and typically defendants are pleased with that. They're pleased with the idea that they're going to get a period of time to respond to the claimant's case. But in my experience, claimants are getting quite adept now in large trading loss cases, and indeed large accountant negligence cases generally, and actually converting or trying to convert sequential exchange into a weapon against defendants. And the way that plays out is, is as follows. The claimants invest a massive amount of time and cost on claimants' liability reports. Enormously detailed liability reports are then served. And this actually creates something of an asymmetry. By this point, the claimants have prepared and exchanged their witness evidence and their expert evidence. They're pretty much ready for trial. Um, it's just the trial bundle and skeletons that, that, that lie ahead. And the baton then gets passed to the defendants to grapple with having to respond to these huge liability reports from the claimant. And the key here for the defendant 
is the defendants have got to ensure that their experts have done sufficient work in advance of receipt of the claimant's extra report so that they are able to respond within the time given, usually three months. Otherwise, the defendant's expert is just really playing catch-up, and that can have knock-on effects for the defence as a whole. Now, three months sounds like a long time to prepare an expert report on liability issues, but not in a large case where the claimant has spent six months preparing theirs. So that's one thing in my experience that the defendant firms have really got to have a look at. And one answer of that to that is as simple as make sure you've really built in a conservative estimate for how long it is going to take your expert to prepare their responsive report, four months rather than three, for instance. Now, the, the third issue I want to talk about, which, which, which is related, is sequential exchange of quantum reports. Now, there's, there's a really interesting dynamic here. In contrast to the hugely detailed liability reports, claimant expert reports are quite often much thinner and typically proceed on the basis of prescriptive instructions and or some complex set of factual assumptions that the expert's supposed to proceed on the basis of. And the reason for that is claimants want to present an easy and high-level calculation of loss. Um, and without really getting down into the detail, typically on one or two bases, if the company is insolvent, then it will usually be on an increased net asset deficiency basis. So that's the difference between the net asset deficiency at the later date of actual uh, entry into administration and what would have been the lower net asset deficiency at the earlier notional or hypothetical date of administration had the auditors complied with their duty. And it said that the, the losses suffered is the difference, the worsening in that net asset position between the date when the audit client would have gone into administration and the later date when they actually did. If the company's solvent still, then the claim is more likely to be for either wasted or net expenditure the difference between cash out and cash in um, on the basis that had the auditor done their job properly, then the levels of expenditure would have ceased or, or been constrained. Now, what the claimants then do is that they turn to MBS and GT and they say there's a, there's a sufficient overarching nexus between the subject matter of the audit failings and these claimed trading losses. Typically because, so it's said, in the event of a competent audit, the company would have ceased trading and or ceased its levels of expenditure. Now, I'm perhaps being a little unkind on the sophistication of claimants' arguments because that's how defendants try to characterise those arguments to identify that in truth that's just factual causation. There needs to be something more. But that, that issue remains there to be examined at trial. The defendants, in terms of their expert reports, invoking Lord Leggett's approach in MBS, want to undertake a much more granular analysis to identify whether there are any actual, specific, 
identifiable items of trading loss that can be said to have been caused by the underlying subject matter in respect of which there was the audit failure. Now, claimants don't want that. They want to just present the wider picture to the court without that breakdown. And this is where, quite often late in the piece of litigation, if you're not careful, you come full circle back to underlying accounting data, which may not have been the subject of disclosure. And the problem is that the defendants, quantum experts in that situation, is they don't have possibly the time, but even if they did have the time, they don't have the ammunition to do the exercise required, i.e. reconstitute accounts or, or investigate trial balances. Because the defendant quantum expert is starting from scratch and the claimant hasn't done that exercise. So, so it's not really a responsive expert report at all. The defendant is having to make all the running via their quantum expert in relation to the question of trading losses and attributability because the, the claimant is seeking to put a higher level case forward to try and sidestep it. So if you're not careful and if you haven't got that accounting data identified at the outset, what then happens is you might have a, a defendant saying quite late in the piece, we need to see your underlying trial balances, we need to see underlying accounting data, we need to see get access to your underlying accounting software. And of course, the defendants at that stage may well be turning around and saying, what are you talking about? You've had sequential exchange, you've had the benefit of that, you've had months to prepare these reports, it's for the claimants to decide how to run our case. We're happy with the approach we've taken in our expert reports. Nothing to disclose so far as we're concerned. And it's all too late for you to be requiring us to do some drains-up disclosure exercise now. And if a defendant isn't astute, that can leave the defendant in a bit of a difficult place because they suddenly need to backload the work in relation to accounting records. And they then need to decide whether the the defence arguments on duty nexus are strong enough to call the claimant's bluff on the claimant's approach to quantum by going to trial. Um, now, of course, if you're the defendant firm, what you want is you want your quantum evidence to actually deconstruct the trading loss claim and identify that, in truth, there are no trading losses that have been caused by the underlying issue that is said to have made the audit opinion wrong. Or, depending on the facts of the case, that actually there are very significant benefits for which the claimant entity has got to give credit. So you want to have that fallback position to argue the, 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 the crunch on trading losses to then have the courage of your convictions to argue out actually whether the claimant's formulation for trading losses is a claim for trading losses at all. Or, or is it in truth something that isn't even a proxy for trading losses? And what we're seeing at the moment is a high stakes game of chicken where these arguments get to a certain stage and then they tend not to get to trial. And practitioners in this area, it seems to me, are waiting to see 
how that is going to actually play out if and when it gets to court. It will be fascinating, won't it, to see um, whether or how uh, AI impacts on trial strategies, whether uh, use of AI to deconstruct data um, will give new avenues for the defence. Yes, I mean, I think AI is, is, is fascinating. And, and I think it's absolutely the case that the FRC will be expecting um, firms to be championing the use of AI in audits and effectively removing sampling uh, because there's no reason why all of the ledgers can't be tested using AI. But also, AI isn't going to just be happening on the auditor side. AI is going to be developed and being deployed by the audit client as well. So the level of complexity of the uh, underlying financial transactions of the audit client may be increasing hand in hand with the level of sophistication of, of the audit firm. When we're looking at the role of AI in, in litigation, we've seen for a while that AI is, of course, very helpful on large disclosure exercises. We've probably all had experience of using the disclosure tools that can actually carry out intelligent searching where you start your searches and then the algorithm learns what it is you're searching for and can massively reduce the time that gets spent on disclosure, which, of course, is necessary because disclosure is probably the single largest thing that drives up costs in civil litigation because of the vast quantity of data that, that now exists. Perhaps more nervously, um, as a barrister, I, I, I'm, I also wonder about the role of AI actually in the court process and in the judicial process. Parties squabble for weeks over chronologies on whether they can be agreed or not. Uh, and the process gets even worse if the parties try and have a factual narrative to replace the um, background events that used to be in witness statements before um, the new approach to witness statements in the business and property courts. Imagine a world in which uh, the judiciary had signed up and approved a particular form of AI that reviewed a batch of documents and then just generated a factual summary which the judge took as the factual summary um, and then solely invited legal submissions. Now I think we're a long way away from that but at some point AI is going to rudely interrupt the norms of trial preparation that we have at the moment. Thank you very much to Ben Hubble Casey for joining me today. If you would like to listen to more broadcasts, then please do check out our website at dacbeachcroft forward slash broadcast. Bye for now.